just want to draw your attention to a couple of things which I think you'll be interested in. Brackets, shameless plugs. Um, the first is, if you were here two years ago at the Calvin conference, then you will be thrilled to know that the papers from that conference have been published and there are copies of those papers available at the back so you can relive the memory of that very uh, moving and helpful conference on Calvin. And if you weren't here, then you'll need to buy the papers anyway to find out how good it was. So there are plenty of copies of that at a reduced rate on the bookstore at the back. Um, I'd also like to mention that LTS is going to launch an online journal uh, in the next few months, sometime between now and Christmas. Um, the journal will be online. You can access it through the website. Um, and there will be articles of different lengths on there, which I'm sure you'll find interest, interesting and helpful. They are intended to be for men in ministry to help with all sorts of aspects uh, of ministerial life. So keep your eye open for the um, LTS online journal. Very pleased to be able to introduce to you our next speaker, who again I hadn't met before this conference, uh, Graham Bynan. You can read about him, who he is, and so on. Uh, on the uh, conference notes, I discovered instantly with him we have a mutual interest in benign positional vertigo. Uh, this morning, which is not a theological uh, position, it's a medical thing, um, but I suppose you could say uh, he has had a former life caring for the body, and now in his present life he's caring for the, the soul as well, so a whole person ministry in his life, and we're very pleased that he's coming to speak to us um, uh, today on issues that have arisen in his research on Isaac Watts for his PhD. So we're very grateful to you and look forward to what you have to say to us in a moment. Before uh, Graham comes and speaks to us, I'm going to read a few verses from Mark 12 and then pray. It would have been uh, a terrible oversight if we had not read this passage at some point during these two days. Mark 12, beginning at verse 28. Mark 12:28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, "Which commandment is the most important of all?" Jesus answered, "The most important is, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength." The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbour as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. 
Almighty God, we are so grateful again for this opportunity to meet together, to confer together, to listen to papers that have been thought about and researched and mulled over and prayed over. And we are so grateful for the opportunity to benefit from other men's labours in that sense and also from each other's wisdom and experience. We pray that you would help Graham as he speaks to us this afternoon. We pray that the relevance of what he's saying would not escape us and that we wouldn't be merely interested by what he says but that we would be stirred and moved to apply in our own lives and in Christian service the lessons that we learn. We pray above all things that as a result of this conference we might indeed love you more with every aspect of our being that you might be glorified in us and that you might be delighted in what you see in us and what you have worked in us by your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you very much for that introduction and thank you for the invite to speak, I guess, to Gary, who uh, I know, uh, who lectured me uh, and was a formative influence in many ways. He he made a face at that suggestion uh, and uh, it's been a pleasure to be here and be with you this uh, last day or so. Uh, I've been asked to talk about the centrality of love in the Christian life and I'm going to do so by looking at the thought of Isaac Watts, uh, uh, who I've spent the last year or so immersing myself in. And this talk and the last one actually have quite a lot of overlap between them. I think that's a good thing. Gary gave us a lot to think about and we could have spent longer unpacking that, I hope what I will do is both look at uh, some of the same material from a slightly different angle, which might shed more light, and have the chance to lead on in application a little bit more, and hopefully our discussion can continue in that way. Uh, Watts wasn't a Puritan chronologically uh, either, Uh, 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 Edwards wasn't uh, that earlier, but he's often too referred to as one uh, theologically. I'll just give a little bit of background, because I, don't, I, I worry that Watts is well known to us as a hymn writer, but not in any other aspect of his work. So just a little background. Uh, his ministry covered the first half of the uh, 18th century, um, started at the end of the 17th, a little prior to that of Edwards, but with some overlap between them. Uh, he was a congregational minister in London, uh, at the church, in fact, where John Owen had previously been uh, minister some time earlier. But his context is both similar to and different from that of Owen and Edwards. Uh, Watts too, uh, just to reinforce the point Gary made earlier, found himself between pure rationalism and enthusiasm, or sort of fanaticism. Uh, But in the early 18th century, the rationalism was the dominant thought. Enlightenment thought, the work of John Locke and others, was on the rise. There had been a marked reaction against what was seen as the dogmatism and enthusiasm of the Puritans. And so to label oneself as a Puritan was to uh, risk uh, uh, people pouring scorn on you. And that kind of combination led to a great emphasis that religion should be marked by reasonability, Uh, and a simple morality. And it's often been commented how it resulted in the great cooling 
of religion until the evangelical revivals. And Watts himself says that his age has indeed advanced in the use of reason. He writes upon the work of John Locke and others and says that much of it is good and helpful. But he also laments that in terms of passion for God, his age is horribly cold. So he is writing now as someone in a kind of minority position, arguing for heart religion like that described by people like Owen, at a time when there was very little of it, and when people feared that if you spoke in those terms at all, you would simply be branded enthusiast and dismissed. What's his aim then is not like Edwards' aim. He's not trying to distinguish between the wheat and the chaff in a situation of revival. His aim is to revive the religion of his day. His emphasis is on justifying and vindicating passionate religion and aiding people in how they might gain and express such religion. While at the same time, knowing that enthusiasm does exist and needs to be steered clear of. And I suggest there might be more parallels with our day in that situation. Watts wrote two works directly on uh, the passions, although it's through his sermons and other writings. Uh, The Doctrine of the Passions, which is a more general philosophical work. And Discourses of the Love of God and its influence on all the passions, both published in 1729. I'm going to have a look at Watts' view of the passions generally, and there'll be some overlap here with what we heard this morning. Then look at his view of the love of God specifically, and then some implications. So Watts and the passions, first of all. I should point out that unlike Edwards, Watts doesn't distinguish between the terms passions and affections. He notes that that distinction is often made. And we heard earlier, Edwards speaks of passions as kind of more powerful and overbearing, overriding affections. Watts doesn't distinguish, so don't make that judgment in your mind when you hear some quotes. He defines the passions as the felt responses that come because of the characteristics of an object. So if an object is unusual, we feel surprise. If it is beautiful, we feel desire. If it is dangerous, we feel fear, and so on. And passions for what are something that we do actually feel. They arise from our perception, our understanding, our evaluation, but what sees the person as a unity, to echo a theme we've mentioned already, he says, I quote, there is such a near and special union between soul and body that what we regard in our minds, with our soul, our perceptions, we feel in our body, at least to some extent. What says there are primary passions which then lead on to more derivative secondary passions and the primary passions are those of love and hate so if we uh, if we love something and we don't have it we then feel longing if we gain it we feel delight and joy if we have it and then we lose it we feel sadness and despondency and so on 
The same is true for the things we hate. If we're faced with the possibility of something we hate, we feel trepidation. If we avoid something we hate, we feel relief. And so on. And so he sees love and hate as the primary uh, foundational passions from which all the others flow. And, as in fact what we hate is simply the opposite of what we love, says that all of the passions can be evaluated by our loves. That's not uh, unique to Watts. Uh, We heard elements of it earlier. Um, But uh, Augustine, for example, says something very similar in City of God. Let's think about the purpose of the passions for Watts. He sees them as primarily motivational. Here's a quote. Consider, my friends, what were the passions made for? Not merely for the sensible pleasure of human nature, that's the felt conscious enjoyment that they bring, not merely for the sensible pleasure of human nature, but to give it vigour and power for useful actions. The passions, he says, are those principles which, quote, animate us to pursue the good and avoid the evil. And he draws a contrast with our reason here. Our reason may tell us that something is good or bad, but it doesn't motivate us. It is when I feel something is good, it is when I love it, that I will actively pursue it. Or that when I feel something is bad, I'm afraid of it, that I will actively avoid it. Watts refers to the passions as the engine of the human being, the engine that drives us. It's not uncommon in 18th century thought to refer to the passions as the active powers of the person. And there's overlap with Edwards here. We saw earlier that Edwards saw the affections as a facet of the will. What spends less time than Edwards trying to uh, distinguish the precise workings of uh, the, the different sort of faculties, and he does distinguish passions and will in a way that Edwards doesn't. Edwards makes uh, the affections part of the will. But, I suggest, this motivational view, uh, the passions as the engine, does mean that for Watts the passions and the will are very tightly connected. Let's think about the passions as sort of created, fallen and restored, just briefly. Uh, Similar to Owen earlier, Watts believed that Adam was created with passions which would have been guided by his reason. Uh, Very similar thoughts to Owen about how reason, affections and will all worked in harmony. Reason giving the lead, affection and will gladly following and how the person operated as a whole. He says, his natural powers had no uneasy contest. There was no civil war nor rebellion amongst them to interrupt his happiness. The formulation is that the reason understands and perceives. The affections are inclined to to desire or to withdraw and the will chooses accordingly. It's probably worth being aware, that sounds very similar to Edwards and is, but it's probably worth being aware that Watts does in one of his works try and make a case for the freedom of the will. Uh, um, uh, We heard last night 
uh, that Edward's work on the freedom of the will was written against Arminians, which indeed it was, it was also written against tentative Calvinists. And the tentative Calvinist in question was Isaac Watts, who is referred to as the author of uh, a treatise on the, the freedom of will in God and creatures. But we'll leave that to one side. Watts then locates the primary effect of the fall in the passions. It is that we now live by sinful passions rather than being guided by reason. We fix our passions on improper objects. We love what we shouldn't. We fix passions on the right objects but with excessive degree. We love good things but too much. And because of the the motivational energy of our passions, this, of course, leads to disaster. I said earlier he called the passions an engine. Now he says they are a most powerful engine of mischief. Let me quote part of his poetry. Our hasty wills rush blindly on where rising passion rolls. And thus we make our fetters strong to bind our slavish souls. Our will, our, our will follows the passion and so we are bound, we are enslaved to our sinful passions. It's probably worth just reflecting on a moment we had earlier in the questions. Uh, What's here is seeing the passions then as overriding the reason. Um, we were thinking earlier, you mentioned Gary, about what Edwards would say about that. And I think I'd, my instinct would be that Edwards would say that if the affections are wrong, it must be because there is something wrong in the understanding and perception that has resulted in that. Watts is more fluid and would say that our perception can, can see something might be wrong and yes, I desire it. And my passions override my reason. I think on occasion he actually doesn't give enough uh, of a count of the noetic effects of sin. He does seem to think that reason remains relatively untroubled by the fall. But passion overrides it. Conversion though for what restores our faculties. I quote, God reforms our natures. He puts all our misplaced and disjointed powers into their proper order again. It is the blessed spirit that inclines reason to submit to faith and makes the lower faculties to submit to reason and obey the will of our maker. Uh, what's including uh, the passions in the lower faculties, although he doesn't make them as low as say Aquinas does I don't think and we see this again in Watts' hymns the spirit like some heavenly wind blows on the sons of flesh new models all the carnal mind and forms the man afresh this then means that passions are key for Watts in Christian living they are the primarily, motivation, primarily motivational power in us. And so he says that power is now taken out of the hands of Satan and is employed by God. And again, he draws a contrast with uh, just 
what reason would tell us. And he's in part responding to his context here, and we'll come back to this. Let me quote. Even where reason is bright and the judgment clear, yet it will be ineffectual for any valuable purposes. If religion reach no farther than the head and proceed not to the heart, it will have but little influence if there are none of the passions engaged. Cold, unaffecting notions will have no powerful influence to reform our lives. So we've seen the passions generally. We've seen the passions as are created and fallen and restored and then key in the Christian life. And this leads us on to the primary place of the love of God. What says, of course, that God is the proper object of our supreme love. His work on the love of God, his discourses are based on that passage we just read earlier, uh, which of course itself reflects on Deuteronomy uh, 6. As I've mentioned already, one of his great concerns is to challenge the cool and outward religion of his day, the pure head religion that we just read of, and what he sees to be the hypocrisy that results from it. So he says in the opening to those discourses, it is not enough for the eye to be lifted up to him, to God, or the knee to bow before him. It is not enough for the tongue to speak of him, or the hand to act for his interest in the world. All this may be done by painted hypocrites, whose religion is all disguise and vanity. But the heart, with all the inward powers and passions, must be devoted to him in the first place. So what locates the heart and the love of God in the heart as utterly central in the Christian life and something which every Christian and every Christian minister should attend to. Let me summarise and synthesise some of his main points about the love of God. First of all, that it comes from knowledge of God, similar to this morning. Remember, passions are raised by the properties of an object. So what says, it is not to be expected that we should love God supremely or with all our heart if we have not known him to be more excellent and more desirable than all other things we are acquainted with. We must have the highest opinion of his transcendent worth or we cannot love him above all things. And so while Watts is very keen on vindicating and promoting uh, the expression of passion in the Christian life, he is equally uh, focusing on the importance of knowledge. He criticises those who he sees as enthusiasts, who say they love God greatly, but actually don't know him very well. Love must be founded on knowledge, he says. Knowledge and affection should go hand in hand. So there's a, a double-edged thing. One is that that those who claim feeling for God but don't have true knowledge of him are just, just kidding themselves. They're feeling something, but it's not true affection. But equally saying that those who say they know God should love him. It should result in passion for him. There are three key springs for love. I like that term. I'd probably say, you know, foundations for it or something, but spring has that great sense of energy to it, doesn't it? 
Three key springs. A clear sense of what God is in himself. A lively sense of what he has done for us. And a well-grounded hope of what he will bestow on us. So God's character, God's actions and God's promises. Which means that when Watts considers how we should excite love for God, one of the first things he says is that we should reflect on those very areas. And I'll come back to that. True knowledge of God then should result in true love for him. Love for God is the fruit of the gospel. You can evaluate how much someone truly knows God by how much they love him. And then, as we'll see, love becomes the primary, primary motivational power in living for God. So, number one, it involves knowledge of him. Secondly, it does involve feelings for him. I said earlier, passions for what's while coming from our perceptions meant we actually felt something. A bit like our discussion earlier in Gary's comments on Edwards, he is very aware that many factors will play in to exactly what we feel and how uh, heightened, as it were, or depressed our feelings might be. Uh, he goes into some detail. He talks about our physical health, our constitution. He uh, delves into different nationalities and how the Scots, the Welsh and the English will have their different temperaments and so on. I'm, I'm half Welsh, half English, so I feel like I've got the perfect balance. <laughs> he even comments on the weather. You know, seasonal deprivational disorder and so on was there in the 18th century. So he's pastorally very wise. And he does say that, that a will resolved to live for God is better proof than any flash of affection. There's great similarity here between him and Edwards. And yet he says that because of the makeup of the human nature, because of the link between minds and bodies, we should feel something. So he's not troubled about how much and how heightened, and says there are lots of explanatory factors, but we should feel. He says, Hath he formed my soul to delight and love? Has he, has he made me to have those capacities? And hath he confined these sweet and pleasurable capacities only to be employed about creatures when the creator himself is supreme in loveliness? Will not this most amiable of beings expect that I should love himself and give me leave to make him my delight? You see the argument. He's informed us to genuinely feel things. I, I, would, I, I love a good meal. Or I love my wife, my, whatever it is. But if he's formed us to feel in such a way, should we not feel such things about him, the loveliest of all beings? And so, what's argues is that the gospel should have an effect on all of a person in conversion and in Christian living, including their passions, with echoes from last night there. Uh, he talks, for example, about coming to a knowledge of forgiveness. And says, will not this knowledge, will it not fill the soul with overflowings of gratitude and make the lips abound in expressions of joy and praise? And will not these be attended with a peaceful and pleasing aspect and establish a sweet serenity in the heart and eyes? 
and all concur to maintain religion in the power and joy of it. So will not my soul be filled with gratitude and joy and, and peace because I know I'm forgiven? And will not that motivate me in my living for God? So in a day of cool religion, what says he wants to vindicate what he calls the affectionate Christian and rescue him from the charge of enthusiasm and say indeed, it is perfectly reasonable and to be expected that you would feel these things. There is nothing irrational about it. And he then wants to encourage heartfelt experience of God. Thirdly, he sees love for God as having an effect on the rest of life. Remember the passions are the engine of life, so supreme love for God becomes the motivational engine that drives all that the Christian does. And again, Watts compares this with simple understanding. He says understanding something clearly is absolutely necessary, foundational and fundamental, but it is not enough to change the way we live. If the judgment be never so much convinced, yet while the affections remain unmoved, the work of religion will be begun, will be begun with difficulty and will drive on but very heavily. If it is all sheer duty, it'll be hard work. By contrast, if the love of God is ruling in the heart, the life of the Christian is sort of properly empowered. Where the love of God reigns in the affections, the eye will often look up to God in a way of faith and humble dependence. The ear will be attentive to his holy word. The hand will be lifted up to heaven in daily requests. The knee will be bended in humble worship. And all the outward powers will be busy in doing the will of God and promoting his glory. Also remember that um, uh, for what's, uh, what we love and hate uh, result in the sort of secondary passions. Uh, everything comes, our joy, our fear, our delights come from what we love most. And so, he says, if we love God, not only will it result in all these other things in life, it will guide our other passions. He says now, if we had but one sovereign bridle that could reach and manage them all, the other passions that are so unruly, one golden rein that would hold, all, hold in all their unruly motions and would also excite and guide them at pleasure. What a valuable instrument this would be to mortals. Such an instrument is the love of God. Such an invaluable regulator of all the passionate powers. And we saw this yesterday in looking at the life of Jesus, that his love for the Father resulted in other passions, other characteristics, zeal for the Father's name, love of sinners, love of the Father's people, and so on. Well, what says love of God will result in admiration at God, desire for God, joy and pleasure in God, love of what belongs to God, his word, his people, his son, zeal for God. It will result in hatred of what offends God, 
fear of anything that would cut us off from God, and so on. Watts then was concerned for obedience in the life of the Christian, not just some experience and feeling for God. And he certainly wanted to avoid just dry orthodoxy and had the hinge between the belief and the life, as it were, was the passions. Fourthly, he also gives some cautions. While Watts is keen to vindicate and encourage the affectionate Christian, he knows enthusiasm exists. So he cautions people about making their passions a source of knowledge or living by them in some way. He cautions people against good passions degenerating. So zeal for truth becoming indignation. Hatred of sin becoming hatred of people. Admiration becoming envy and so on. And he especially cautions against people living for an experience of God or dependent on certain feelings for God. He says there have been too many persons who have made their religion to consist too much in the working of their passions without a due exercise of reason in the things of God. They've contented themselves with some divine raptures without seeking after clear conceptions of divine things. He says these Christians live by kind of fits and starts of devotion. They're always high as a kite or as, you know, depressed and so on. They're they're never just steady people. So while encouraging heartfelt love for God, he also cautions in these and a number of other ways in which that sort of encouragement could be misheard and misapplied. And says that this means the Christian must be very watchful over their own hearts. And this is where he shows some of his pastoral insight. To guard against these dangers, he says, let Christians frequently enter their own hearts and endeavour as far as possible to examine their own spirit and conscience to distinguish between their inward workings of piety and the mere exercises of animal nature or the workings of a corrupt affection. Fifthly, what directs the Christian as to how they should excite the love of God in their hearts. To answer the question I had earlier of whether we should try and stimulate such uh, affections and passion for God, Watts answers with a resounding yes and gives one of his discourses over to that question. Now remember he has said that the passions are part of our response to something. They do not simply lie under the command of our will. I cannot simply tell myself to feel joy in God or to love him. But, he says, it may be done by the consideration of truth. For as the passions are raised by perceptions of the mind, so we may, by degrees, raise or suppress the passions by applying our minds to the perception of these objects, all those truths which are suited to these purposes. In other words, we can decide where to fix our attention, we can decide to focus on something uh, clearly, and so engage and promote the right passionate response to it. And that might be, for example, hatred against sin. 
he particularly looks at how we excite to love for God. So he urges the Christian to fix their attention on God and cultivate this love. Uh, he lists many suggestions. I'll just pick a few. Meditation on God and his character is key in this. He particularly suggests the use of meditation using scripture and notes that scripture itself has very affecting language in sections of it. And so he says, use those sections which are very emotive, especially, he says, the Psalms, which he calls an altar of sacred fire. He says in the Psalms we are given an example and a spring of most lively and exalted devotions. And says to Christians they should model their affections and meditations to God on David's. Lift up your souls to God in the words of David or imitate his language where his words do not so perfectly express your case. Enter into his spirit. Form and model your pious affections by that illustrious pattern. I won't mention this as one of my uh, implications, so I'll do it now on the way through. I suggest that that kind of personal meditation is a lost art and discipline in contemporary Christianity. And what saw it as one of the, the kind of foundation stones which you would use to excite your own love for God, along with... He would mention public worship, and I'll come back to some things on that, and fellowship with other Christians. We're a social creature. Our passions are raised by, by uh, converse with others. Um, very, lots of very practical things. He'll say things like, you know, excite your own passions by trying to excite those of your neighbour. So tell your neighbour how good God is, and you'll find you're rejoicing in him yourself, and so on. And as well as positively encouraging this sort of cultivation, he also warns against the negative. Don't let your attention be on the things of this world which you might love instead of God. You should set a holy jealousy around your heart and beware what will draw your heart, what you might be tempted to love instead. He says, Whensoever you find a tempting creature taking too fast a hold of your passions, set a guard of holy jealousy upon it and keep your heart at a holy distance from that creature, lest it twine about your inward powers and draw them off from their allegiance and duty to God. And ultimately, he says, we must look to God and we must pray for this love. He knows God promises to circumcise our hearts so that we will indeed love him with all our hearts at the end of Deuteronomy. And so he says, seek earnestly the influences of the quickening spirit. Without him you can do nothing. It is the spirit of God who raises dead sinners at first into a divine life and he puts all the languid springs of life into new motion. It's he who awakens our fear, excites our hopes, who kindles our love and desire to things holy and heavenly. And it is he who exalts our spiritual joys. And so all of the activity and meditation and 
conversation and public worship and so on is to be done in dependence on God and calling on him. Well, let me make a couple of quick connections and then um, draw some implications. First of all, a connection with praise, with Watts' view of praise in song. I thought this was worth mentioning because Watts is, of course, best known for his hymns. The connection I want to draw out is that what is often not realised is that it is Watts' view of the passions that lay behind the writing of his hymns. In Watts' day, the majority of churches sang metrical psalms, if they sang at all. And Watts' hymns were groundbreaking. In two ways, he wrote what we now know of as the modern hymn, a sort of a topical hymn, if you like. And he also paraphrased the psalms, so that they spoke more explicitly of Christ and of the Christian life. And the reason he did both was his view of passion. He says of the singing of his day, singing metrical psalms, that as you sing, your spiritual affections are being raised as you sing of something of God, and just as they're being raised, you sing something dark and cloudy of Judaism. And the result, he says, is that your affections are checked. You're now speaking of something that is not your experience of God, but the psalmists. He says, by keeping too close to David in the house of God, the veil of Moses is thrown over our hearts. That's very good. So, Watts argues, we must be able to sing of our own experiences of Christ, the gospel, forgiveness, new covenant, hope of heaven, and so on. And so he writes his hymns. Now, this, of course, shows what he thinks is happening in praise. He doesn't think praise is simply reciting truth. He believes it is where our passions are both stimulated and expressed, and hence he's worried about their passions being checked if we can't sing of our own experience. He says, let us remember that the very power of singing was given to human nature chiefly for this purpose, that our warmest affections of soul might break out into natural or divine melody and that the tongue of the worshipper might express his own heart. So in praise, he expects our passions to be raised. And in fact, he even writes lyrics in his hymns which say this. I quote, such wondrous love awakes the lip of saints that were almost asleep to speak the praises of thy name and makes our cold affections flame. This also means that what then puts on the mouth of the singer words that he thinks are appropriate to express Love and devotion. It's an interesting thing, writing songs to be sung in the church. They should, of course, express the truth that we believe. But Watts would argue they should also express the affection that we should feel. And so his hymns not only give us the solid doctrine, they also give us an insight into 
the affections he thought we should have. For example, now shall my inward joys arise and burst into a song. Almighty love inspires my heart and pleasure tunes my tongue. Watts isn't alone in this view of praise. Uh, Richard Baxter said of, of poetry and singing, as it expresseth affections, so doth it raise them. Edward said, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. So there's a clear connection with Watts' view of praise. We're going to cover more applications later. I'll just mention very briefly an application on preaching, or a connection with preaching rather. This means that for Watts, the preacher must raise the love of God in the hearts of his hearers. Of course, right love comes from right understanding, so he says the preacher's first business is to strike light into the mind. But having done so, he must also warm the heart. He must use all lively, forceful and penetrating forms of speech to make your words powerful and impressive upon the hearts of your hearers and so on. And key in this is that the preacher warms his own heart first. There was lots of discussion about rhetoric in the 18th century and discovery of neoclassical thoughts on rhetoric rhetorical rules and preachers discussed this. Watts gave it a little time, but he said he was less concerned with the business of rhetoric and far more worried that the preacher simply felt what he was saying. And that if he did, the words would take care of themselves. Where the words freeze upon his lips, he says, the hearts of his hearers are freezing also. But where we find devout affection mingled with solid argument in the discourse, there the lips of the preacher seem to speak light and life at once, and he helps to communicate the holy passion all around by feeling it first himself. I'm reminded of a quote from Spurgeon in his lectures to his students that uh, a flaming heart, sorry, a burning heart will find for itself a flaming tongue. So get your heart on fire and your tongue will do the rest. I don't think that means there's nothing to be learnt in classes on homiletics, but it takes us to a foundational issue in our preaching. Well, let me draw some applications. I have seven and I will be quick. First of all, there is the need for the promotion of love of God in our day. Watts was writing at a time when religion had cooled and he wished to promote heart religion and I suggest we must do the same. It needs to have, as Watts's did, awareness of the dangers that can be involved and the misunderstandings that can come. It needs to be based firmly on knowledge and a right understanding of uh, anthropology, uh, no promotion of emotionalism and so on. But it must be promoted because good and clear understanding, while necessary, is not enough. Seeing God clearly must lead to loving him deeply. 
and love of him is to lead on to the knock-on effects. We must promote the love of God in our lives as central and key in the Christian life. Secondly, then, the need to aid people in cultivating such love. It's not enough simply to say it needs to be there. We uh, could easily just stand up in our churches and say, we must love God deeply. And all we're doing, doing is pointing like a signpost. We're not helping people on the journey. Watts, I think, gets down to some of the nitty-gritty of trying to help people. For example, he, he actually annexes a meditation at the end of each of his discourses, which is to be used by the reader. He says at the end of his preface, in order to make this work a more serviceable, more serviceable to the purposes of practical godliness, I have endeavoured to form a, he calls it a pathetic meditation, uh, he means, of course, a heartfelt meditation. Pathetic used to mean the opposite of apathetic. So I get over the language. I've endeavoured to form a pathetic meditation upon the argument of each discourse that I might, as far as possible, exemplify the practice of those things which I recommend to the world and assist the devout reader to make a present use of them towards his advancement in the Christian life. And the meditations are moving and heartfelt. I was going to read some of them to you, but we haven't got time. Um, So he aids people in how to promote the love of God. I think there's pastoral usefulness in this analysis in addressing feelings in our congregations. In pastoral ministry, people are constantly telling us they feel up or down, anxious or sad, confident or glad, or whatever. As we encounter people, we encounter them not just with the facts of their life, but with how they are feeling about them. And if we appreciate the centrality of love, then I should know that whatever that person is feeling, behind it is what they love. The question is, is it a good love? They may feel very glad, they may be overjoyed, but that might be for very bad reasons. Because they love their image, and someone's just paid them compliments, and they've got a promotion at work, and so on. I'm happy in a sense they're not feeling terrible, but I don't want them to feel glad for that reason. Someone may may be feeling down, but they're feeling down because of their sin. In other words, as I engage with people in their feelings, I ask what love is driving that emotion. There's also pastoral usefulness in in addressing people's actions. In other words, we must appreciate the motivational power of our affections in our speaking, in our counselling and addressing how people are living the decisions they're making we must ask what love is driving them why are they doing what they are doing in other words what we are after is not simple outward conformity that they are doing what I would expect they are at the right meetings and doing the right things I'm concerned about why they are doing what they are doing Very briefly, I suggest this may raise some interesting questions regarding praise. We haven't discussed a full theology of praise, but we've mentioned it this morning and this afternoon. 
And um, I should mention, my, my PhD is on Watts' view of reason and passion. And Watts will have a lot to say about content and reason and understanding in what we sing. And that it expresses and excites our passions. I suggest in there somewhere is going to be something very helpful between the kind of kind of charismatic seek an experience and the conservative be wary of any experience in our praise. And I just think it's fascinating that one of our great hymn writers was actually motivated by his view of the passion in the Christian life. Our preaching, there's more to be said later, I expect. I'll simply note the need to engage our own passions. In contemporary discussions of preaching, one key issue, particularly in emerging church discussions, if you see any of those, is the issue of authenticity in preaching. I think that's a key issue in our day. We could discuss that more later. And I suggest Watts' comments on feeling what we preach is key in authenticity. And lastly, we should finish by remembering our own hearts and asking ourselves, are we those who love God? Are we those whose ministry flows from a love for God? Are we those attending to our own hearts and nurturing a heartfelt love for God? Shall we pray? And then we'll take some questions. Father God, we are made by you, for you, and to love you with all our heart and soul and strength. And we admit, Father God, that our hearts have gone astray and we thank you for your reorientating and renewing work in them. We confess they still do so easily go astray. And we ask that the Spirit who has renewed them would strengthen our love for you. Father God, may we be those who in all our busyness and in all our work in all our ministry, in all our preparation, in all our conversations, may we be those who love the Lord our God with all our heart. Amen.